Now here we're continuing our series through the book of Judges, and we've seen a theme that losing sight of God brings very bad things into people's lives. But we also see something else amazing about our God. And what I find amazing about God is this. God can take unusual and God can take very ordinary things and do extraordinary things with them. You know, when I was in college, um, my first year, I tested out of a whole year of college with the college-level equivalency program, CLEP tests. And so I thought, oh, college, piece of cake. So they actually didn't take attendance in the college classroom. And I thought, sweet. So I went over to the student center, and I discovered the game of pool. And instead of going to class, I played pool. And guess what I found? Even though the professors don't take attendance, they still give tests. And so I go from testing out of my first year because of my immaturity and foolishness to being on academic probation. My parents had a very serious conversation with me about my results, and thankfully I turned a corner. But something that I saw in the student center was this guy that came in, and no kidding, he looked like a hillbilly. Remember, I went to college in West Virginia. So this guy comes in in jeans, and you know, of course, they're the high-water jeans, pulled up about like that. And he had a flannel shirt and wild hair and a little mountain beard going on. And you, you looked at him, and you just thought, man, what is this guy? And he would challenge students to pool. And of course, let's make it interesting, it turns out he's a hustler. So he goes in and he plays pool with all of these naive college students. And I remember one day I was watching him. He fascinated me. He, was, he had so much skill. He bet a student that he could beat him playing pool with a broomstick. The broom still attached, and he played this guy. And that guy did amazing things with that broomstick, made every shot, made trick shots. He was amazing. And you know, years later as I reflect on that, I think about how a master, an excellent player in anything, can take something very ordinary and do amazing things with it. And how that is a picture of God. God, the master, the creator, can take very ordinary things and do extraordinary things with them. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we look into the story of Deborah and Barak, and in particular, a woman that we'll be introduced to, Jael. And what we find is this. It's not the people, it's God. God uses people to do extraordinary things, but it is God who does the extraordinary things through them. And that's what we want to see as we look at this story. Now, what we're going to see as we start this is the faithfulness of God. And really, the book of Judges is really all about the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of faithless people. 
and how God works to accomplish His purpose and His plan. As we come to chapter 4, we are introduced to Barak and to Deborah. And what we're going to see as we go into this study, into this text, is that God has the power to save. And really, chapters 4 and 5 are divided into some interesting parts. Chapter 4 gives us the blow-by-blow of what happens. It's the story of Barak and Deborah and Jael and Sisera. But then when we go into the fifth chapter, we find the song of Deborah. And in the song of Deborah, we find set poetically some color commentary on the story, some filling in of the blanks. And it's really amazing how the two of these chapters fit together and how they work hand in glove to communicate this important story about God's faithfulness and how God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So let's look at this fourth chapter. And as we come to it, we find something that is a very much a pattern in the book of Judges, and that is the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of the people. So look at the first verse of this fourth chapter, and notice it says this, and the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Now, if you remember the story of Ehud, we just saw it last week, Ehud delivered the people of Israel from the king of Moab, and he did it in spectacular fashion. And God delivered all of the enemies of the people over to Israel, and the people of Israel had peace. But as is the pattern when the spiritual leader who had led them into peace and who had pointed them to God, when they died, the people forgot about the lessons that they had learned. And they went back into their old patterns of sinful living. And certainly that's the case here. When he died, the people were sold into the hands of the king of Canaan, Jabin or Jabin. Now, we know from previous accounts, when the people turn away from God, God brings discipline on them. His purpose is to teach the children of Israel the importance of dependence on Him. So what we find is, once again, in this cycle of obedience and disobedience, they're swinging back to the disobedient side of their relationship with God. And as a result, they have a king who, once again, oppresses them. Now, when we find this story introduce us to Jabin, we find that the people of Canaan, who are described earlier in the book of Judges as a people that they could not drive out because they had many chariots, this person comes and he takes control of them. And what we find is there was an oppressive control that he had over them. Look at the third verse. At the close of the second verse, the beginning of the third verse, what we find is that Jabin had a relationship with a commander of his army, and this person's name was Sisera. Now, Sisera was probably from a foreign land and came and worked under Jabin, but there's something very unique about this working relationship that this king of Canaan, Jabin, had with Sisera, and that is this, the size of the army. 
In verse 3 it says, Then all the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, and of course this is referring to Sisera, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly, look at this, for 20 years. Now, 20 years is a long time when you're under oppression. And the strength of Sisera and of Jabin was this, 900 iron chariots. Now, we hear 900 iron chariots, and, uh, yeah, okay, 900 iron chariots, yeah, horse-drawn, you know, I've seen Ben-Hur, I have an idea of what a chariot is. But understand this, if you are a foot soldier and have no chariots, which is where Israel was, and you're going against an army of 900 iron chariots, that would be like foot soldiers going against tanks. You would look at that and say, no tanks, right? I am not going there. I'm not going to do battle with these. And so here are the children of Israel. They're oppressed. They don't even try. They're looking and they're saying, I am not doing battle with an army that can literally run roughshod over us. So we'll put up with the oppression. And that's kind of where we find Israel at this point. Under the thumb of Jabin and Sisera for 20 years. But then we come to verse 4. And what we find is this. The promise of God comes through His faithful servants. Again and again and again, we see oppression. We see the people cry out to God, and God provides salvation for them by raising somebody up. Now, what's so amazing about this story is the person that God raises up. God raises up a woman. Now, in our culture, we don't have a problem with that. But understand, in the time in which this was written, this was unique, this was unusual, that God would use two women in such a prominent role in saving His people. And that's exactly what we find in the story of Deborah and Barak and Jael. God using these women. We're introduced first to Deborah. And look at how she's described in this. Verse 4. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging in Israel at the time. So here is a prophetess. Now, as you know, a prophet or prophetess was someone that God spoke to and through. And so God uniquely gifted Deborah to communicate His message to the people around them. God had given her this special gift, and she employed it in service to God and in service to the people. And what the Scripture goes on to tell us is that God had elevated her to the position of judge. Now, we know that judging carried with it more than just the idea of deliverance and being a spiritual leader. Judging in the book of Judges also involved, guess what? Judging. She had a place that was set aside where the people of Israel would come to her where she would render a decision. See, the way the structure, the society of Israel was set up was this. There were elders over the various villages. When a person had a decision that had to be rendered, they would go to the elders for an immediate decision. But when a decision became too complex, 
too far-reaching for one of the elders to, describe, to, to decide. What would happen is they would go to a judge. And then the judge would render the decision. This was what Deborah was doing. She was rendering these kinds of decisions for the children of Israel. And so the text goes on to talk about how she did this. Look as we continue at verse 5. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. So there was a specific place that she went, a palm tree, where she sat under the palm tree and rendered these decisions. Verse 6 goes on to say, she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. So here's what happens. God speaks to Deborah. Deborah speaks to one who would go and summon Barak. Barak comes to Deborah, and there in her official capacity, under her palm, as a judge, she speaks on behalf of God. And this is what she says to Barak. Muster a force of 10,000 people, and you're going to go and you're going to overthrow Sisera. Now, when we hear that, we say, okay, 10,000 soldiers against 900 chariots. I think the 10,000 soldiers would prevail. Guess what? Not even close. It would be like a lawnmower going through a stand of grass. The chariots would mow them down. Even with 10,000 people, that's about 10 to 1. One charioteer could take on 10 people, no problem. And so, really what Deborah is calling them to is something that, if we looked at it from a human standpoint, we would say that is a suicide mission. Being sent to go against these chariots on foot, it's insane, it's crazy. But yet, this is what God speaks to Deborah, and this is what Deborah speaks to Barak. And so, when she speaks it, Notice the way it's framed here in the sixth verse. Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? And then look at verse 7. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you, by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hands. Now, who's speaking? Deborah is speaking on behalf of God. So now the odds have shifted. <laughs> it's no longer 10,000 men against 900 chariots. Now it's 900 chariots against God. And that's the huge perspective change that we find in this text. You see, it wasn't the 10,000 soldiers, it wasn't Deborah, it wasn't Barak, it was all God. 
God's deliverance, God's salvation always rests in the power of God. And that's what the book of Judges wants us to grasp. That's what we're to take away from this passage of Scripture, that God delivers. Now, look at verse 8. As we come to verse 8, we find Barak's response. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, wait a minute. God has just said through Deborah to Barak, get 10,000 men, go into battle against the 900 chariots. I will give them into your hands. What is Barak's response? Barak's response is, yeah, I'll go, but I want Deborah with me. Now, Scripture doesn't give us his motivation. It could have been that Barak is thinking, okay, we're going to be miles apart, and if there's an update from God, I want to hear about it. <laughs> so I'd like to take Deborah along with me. We don't know. Um, perhaps he wanted just a, a symbol of God's presence with him as he goes off into battle. We don't know. Sometimes I think Barak gets sort of an unfair shake by commentators. Some people say that he showed no uh, trust in God by adding to what God commanded him to do uh, some sort of, of caveat. That's not the case. I think that Barak had faith in God, but that he wanted to see something of God's presence as they still are preparing to go into a very dangerous encounter. Now, we know that Barak was a man of faith because look at what we find in the book of Hebrews. In the hall of fame, when it comes to faith, we find his name mentioned. It says, and what more shall I say, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, here he is, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to the flight. So when we see the New Testament take on Barak, we find that he is a man of faith. And I believe that that same faith is going to be demonstrated as we continue through this fourth chapter. Now, look at God's response to Barak. Verse 9, and she said, now she referring to Deborah, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, probably when Barak heard this, he was thinking, oh, I won't get the credit. Deborah will get the credit. That's probably what he was thinking, but we're going to see there's a big twist, a big turn that takes place. And then it goes on to say this, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So here they are executing the plan that God had put into place by faith in him. And by the way, <laughs> Barak going and mustering an army, that took great faith. Their tools would have been inferior. They're on foot. They're on chariots. It would have been very, very faith-testing 
to even muster the army. But this is what he does. He goes and he musters this army. In verse 10 it says, And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. So what we're seeing is the, the, the battle scene is being set. With 10,000 soldiers behind him and Deborah at his side, they're going, stepping out by faith in what God called them to do. And by the way, Deborah exercises a great amount of faith as well because she's with Barak as they're going against this overwhelming foe. But the text goes on. And we find in verse 11, something that seems kind of random in the flow of the story. We have Barak, we have Deborah, we have the 10,000, we have Sisera starting to muster his chariots, and then stuck right in the middle of the story, verse 11. Now Haber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now, what does that add to the story, we're thinking, as we're reading this? Well, you'll see in just a few moments. So then we come to verse 12. This is kind of like when you're watching a TV show, and it's showing the story, and then a random little scene, and then it goes back to the story. Well, what you find out later in the movie is that random little scene has a part to play. And what amazes me in all of this is the way God orchestrates this, the way God moves the children of Israel and Zebulun and Naphtali, the way God moves Barak to Deborah, the way God moves them to the battlefield, the way God moves Sisera to a specific battlefield. God is at work in all of this to provide for the salvation of the people. So, look at verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor. By the way, <laughs> Mount Tabor would have been a place that would have neutralized the chariots. Right? Chariots are great on flat ground. But in mountain terrain, not so much, right? Barak was giving up the high ground. Why? Because God commanded him to do so. So here is Barak doing something that's counterintuitive. As a warrior, he would think, I'm not going on level ground with chariots. But as a man of faith, he was saying, God has a plan that's unfolding. And even though it doesn't make sense to me, I'll trust. You ever found that in your life? There are those moments where we look at something and... Everything in us says, boy, you know, I know God says this, but it sure seems it would be better if I did this. We all hit those moments where we have to put the Word of God to the test. 
This is what Barak does. And as we'll see, God blesses him as a result. So, verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord, now look at the way this is framed, has given Sisera into your hands. Notice it doesn't say, will give Sisera into your hands, has given Sisera into your hands. It's as good as done. God has given you His promise, so count it as already fulfilled. And then it goes on, does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following, and the Lord routed Sisera. Now, once again, notice the way this is framed in this text. The Lord routed Sisera. How in the world did 900 people who are on chariots get overcome by 10,000 people on foot? The Lord. By the way, spoiler here, turn to the fifth chapter and let's look at how God accomplished this. You see, in the fifth chapter, the Word of God talks about how this took place. And look at verses 20 through 22. From heaven the stars, the stars fought, from their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Now, you know what's being described there? How God delivered them. How God took something that unexpectedly happened to neutralize the chariots. And what that was was this. In that plain of Kishon, God sent rain. It wasn't rainy season. It wasn't the time for rain. But guess what happens to chariots when they're stuck in the mud? They're neutralized. So, can't you see Sisera, chest out, riding his chariot to victory, and then drip, 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 downpour, he and his army are stuck. Nothing they can do. They are at the mercy of ten to one on foot now. And ten to one on foot, they can't handle. God does amazing things. And certainly that's brought out in this text, because God overpowers this force of Sisera in an overwhelming way. But that's not the end of the story. Look as the story continues. What we find is these 10,000 men pursue, and in verse 15 it says, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and he fled on foot. So here he is running. Where he was running to battle, he's now running away, right? Why? Because God had neutralized his advantage. And verse 16, and Barak pursued the chariots and the army 
To Herosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. But Sisera, verse 17, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Now, wait a minute, tent. There was a tent that was mentioned in verse 11. A relative of Moses that randomly pulled away from everybody else and pitched their tent in an out-of-the-way spot. Where does Sisera wind up? At that tent. And who is at the tent? A woman. A woman named Jael. So, verse 17, Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. And there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber and the Kenites. So here is Sesera. He's looking. And by the way, you can tell what group a particular person is with by the design on their tent. And so here's Sesera, and he looks and he says, oh, man, we have a peace treaty with the Kenites. What a stroke of luck. I just found a Kenite tent so I can run in there and hide, and they will do me a favor and hide me from Barak when he comes. So this is the way the story unfolds. Here is Sisera in the tent of Jabin, or Jael, excuse me. And so, verse 18, Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if anyone comes and asks, is anyone here today, say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in hand, and then she softly, went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went well into the ground where he was lying fast asleep and weary. And then these amazing words, so he died. Now, what's going on? God takes a woman and something that was part of the Bedouin woman's everyday responsibility, and that is setting up a tent, a tent peg, and she used that to kill the most powerful commander in their world. He thought he was coming for a place of comfort, and maybe he even thought she doesn't know who I am. But you could say that Jael had him pegged as an enemy. She knew who he was, she knew what he was doing, and she was there for the people of God. Now, don't miss this. God loves to take ordinary things and use them for extraordinary purposes. But also, this wasn't a surprise to God. Remember what Deborah had told Barak? You will not get the glory for Sisera's death. A woman will. Here's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jael killed Sisera. And so, 
what we find at the conclusion of this story is that, verse 22, Behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Joel went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So she went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel, and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. God saved. Not through the faithfulness of people, but through His own faithfulness. But here's the amazing thing. God takes ordinary people who are obedient to Him and does extraordinary things. Now, let me encourage you. When you get a chance, read the fifth chapter. We're not going to go verse by verse through the fifth chapter because I don't want to keep you here until, uh, you know, one o'clock. But what I do want to do is just talk about just some broad brush observations from this passage. And what we find is this. In verses 1 through 7, what you're going to find is this. There, there's an overall praise for God's salvation. Really, when, when we look at the fifth chapter, it's a celebratory praise of what God did. And what we find is this. First of all, it's the providence of God that deserves praise. In verses 1 through 7, we find Deborah and Barak singing this song of praise, and what they talk about is this, how God took people and moved them into place to accomplish His purpose and His will. God's plan unfolds because of who God is, not because of who His people. And it's been that way historically. When we look at this song, Deborah and Barak revisit how God has worked through nature and how God has worked through nations and how God has worked on behalf of His people because He is a saving God. So the praise is beautiful that's given to God for the way that He's worked in all of these things. Something else we find as we look through the fifth chapter. In verses 8 through 22, we see that the provision of God deserves praise. And again, what we find is a recount of this story. It talks about how Israel had turned to other gods and yet how God in His faithfulness still maintained relationship with the people of Israel. But then it recounts for us how God raised up Deborah, how God raised up Barak, how God raised up Jael, and all of these people were part of God's unfolding plan. What is truly amazing is this. There were people who benefited by being obedient to God, and that would be Zebulun and Naphtali. But something else you're going to see when you go home and read this text is this. There were tribes who basically took a hands-off approach. It was only the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali who were able to go out and see the work of God. The tribes that hung back and said, we don't like the odds, received no blessing. And so part of what this song of Deborah and Barak does is it calls out those tribes. You see, sometimes we think, if I don't really do anything, then I'm okay. At least I haven't done something bad. Well, guess what? When God gives us a command, 
When God calls us to something and we refuse, we miss out on a tremendous blessing. Naphtali and Zebulun were able to see God at work. They were able to see the hand of God deliver in a way that they couldn't conceive. But the tribes that hung back? Nothing. In fact, they're mentioned in the eternal Word of God as people who shrunk from their responsibility to step up and stand at the side of God's people. One final part. In verses 23 through 31, we find that God punishes the wicked and blesses the obedient. This last part I would just like to look at with you for a moment. In verse 23, it says, Curse Meroz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Now, I want you to look at the way this is framed. First of all, Meroz was not part of Israel. It was a part that was aligned with Israel, and they didn't come to their aid. But notice how it's framed that they didn't come to the aid. It's not saying they didn't come to the aid of the people of God. It's saying they did not come to experience the help of the Lord. They didn't get to see what God did in helping His people. So they missed out on a tremendous blessing. It goes on to talk about Jael, the wife of Heber, the tent-dwelling woman most blessed. And then in verse 25 it says, He asked for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble bowl, and she sent his hand, uh, she set her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet and struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. So, recounting the faith, the trust that Jael exercised, but also talking about God's amazing deliverance that this woman, a humble Bedouin, took a humble implement and did what nobody could have imagined, defeated a powerful leader. Again, because of God's faithfulness. God punished Sisera for his arrogance and for his cruelty. And really, that's brought out as we look at the closing thoughts of the fifth chapter. When we come to verse 28, a different woman is pictured. In the first part of this section of the song, it's Jael. But in the next part, it's Sisera's mother. And look at what it says. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? And her wisest princess answers. Indeed, she answers herself. Now, here, the human cost that Sisera's mother feels, peering through the lattice of her house, waiting for the triumphant return of Sisera, 
it starts to strike her, he's not coming back. But understand this. Sisera had thousands of mothers who experienced the same thing because of what he had done. And I think the poetic picture that we're getting here is God had repaid in kind. The punishment is fitting the crime. And so here is this mother wailing, watching, waiting. And then look at verse 30. Have they not found and divided the spoil? And, and look at Sisera and this culture's disregard for women. A womb or two for every man. See, the way it had always been done was Sisera goes and he conquers and he brings back female slaves and he brings back plunder. But now, nothing. The way this passage juxtaposes the heroism of Jael and Deborah with the viewpoint that Sisera had of women, ah, they're a womb or two for every man, is stark, isn't it? You see, God values women. And the other people of this culture, not at all. They're property to be traded. They're part of a victory. Last part of the passage. Verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And then this concluding thought, and the land had rest for 40 years. So what do we see in this story of Deborah and Barak and Jael and Sisera and Jabin? What we find is this, God saves. His faithfulness to save is based on Him. His faithfulness to save takes ordinary things and does extraordinary things with them because the battle belongs to God. He is the one who delivers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text and thank you for the way it enlarges our vision of who you are and what you do. Oh, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to step out in faith when you command us to do something. Let us draw upon your strength and resources. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.